Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about transgenerational trauma. My name is Emily Mitchell, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center. With me today, I have Michelle Elugbusi. Michelle is a born and raised Central Floridian, as well as a recent graduate of the Clinical Mental Health Counseling Master's Program at Rollins College. She's an activist, mental health advocate, and anti-racism educator. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I also have with me Sarah Moore. Sarah is a former therapy intern and volunteer with the Victim Service Center and a recent Rollins College Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program graduate. Her personal and clinical interests center on the role trauma, resiliency, and healing influence individual, family, and community function alike. Sarah, thank you for also being here today. I'm glad to be with you today. I'm glad to have you both here today. Um, And as a very, very brief introduction, those uh, of you who have listened to this podcast may know that trauma can have very lasting effects on individuals who experience it. Transgenerational trauma or intergenerational trauma is the idea that the effects of trauma can be passed down generationally. So what we are looking to explore in this episode is learning what transgenerational trauma is and how it relates to the growing social movement against police brutality and Black Lives Matter as a whole. So so with that in mind, I know I talked about it really briefly, Michelle, but I wanted to just throw it at you to see, you know, what is exactly transgenerational trauma? Yeah, so um, the research I've done and everything I've looked into, and then also just, you know, personally as a Black woman in this country, Um, It's this phenomenon where trauma is passed down through the generations, and this can look like a a family level of something that starts in a family and is passed down through that family, or it can be a collective group experience. So when you look at Black Americans, um, when you look at uh, anti-Blackness around the world, when you look at the Jewish community, when you look at Indigenous populations, it's the trauma that they've experienced that has, whether it's through storytelling or witnessing it, or just even on a molecular cellular level, it's been passed down through the generations. Absolutely. Thank you so much for shedding light on that. 
And Sarah, I wanted to ask you, you know, how did you first learn about trans transgenerational trauma? Yeah, um, I've known, it speaks to my privilege that I learned about intergenerational trauma, transgenerational trauma, um, not through my own experience as a white woman here in America, but through advocacy work I was actually doing back in 2015 with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, uh, I learned it specifically in the context of Native Americans and Indigenous Americans uh, with um, high rates of suicide, high rates of mental illness, substance abuse um, within communities, within surviving tribes, um, and the conversations that got centered around uh, how this isn't you know, at all personal failures of these communities or community failures, um, but the result of historical oppression, uh, actions of genocide, discrimination, poverty. Um, so I learned about intergenerational trauma in the context of its impacts on mental health um, and uh, have kept building on that learning today. Awesome. And and I, and from what I understand, you both... Um do a presentation on, on your research findings about transgenerational trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, it was me who did a presentation in the National Cross-Cultural Counseling uh, Conference about transgenerational trauma. We presented this research. It was uh, myself with a couple of Rollins College professors and another student uh, just discussing um, how transgenerational trauma might be um, relevant for our client presentations as mental health counselors, uh, what we can do uh, and how to integrate the understanding of transgenerational trauma in uh, clinical interven interventions like uh, family genograms, talking about the family system, talking about strengths, gains, and struggles that a family system has gone through, um, and expanding that to the historical historical influences and scope. Got it. Thank you so much for shedding light on that. Um, Michelle, I wanted to ask you, um, what are some examples of transgenerational trauma within black communities? Yeah, so when we go back and we look at the history of this country specifically regarding slavery and, and the first uh, Africans being transported to this country in 1619, um, that was the first probably instance of trauma um, settling on black people and Africans being transported, being captured and transported. Um, and then everything that happened thereafter. So when you look at um, transatlantic slave trade, when you look at slavery that lasted for many, many years, um, you look at black coats, slave patrols, Jim Crow segregation, um, lynchings, even being terrorized by the KKK, all of those things are trauma that have settled within the black community. And again, like when we were talking about what is transgenerational trauma, um, even if somebody didn't experience what happened, you know, with the terror that the KKK was allowed to reign, those stories passed on through generations, through the children. And so even though they didn't experience it, they still have very real um, physiological, you know, felt very physiological effects from that. Wow, really interesting. And and that actually, um, I yeah, that actually brings me to my next question, which is, you know, how can that trauma be transferred from one generation to the next? Is it through, you know, stories? Is it through like a gene, gene thing like that? That was another question I wanted to kind of ask. I think it's all of the above. Yeah, I think that is witnessing it. I think it's storytelling. I think that um, it's the way that when we look at family systems, how families parent their children in a certain way. Um, there's this really good book. Um, her name is Joy DeGruy. And she wrote this book called uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Disorder. And in the book, she talked about 
how essentially transgenerational trauma and how these things have passed down through the generations. Um, and a really quick example of that, I watched a talk she gave and she talked about how um, in slavery, uh, you know, children were being separated from families, they were being sold away from parents. And so in order to stop that from happening, um, you know, a, a slave master might be eyeing a child that they want to sell off because maybe they look like they'd be a strong person, so they make a lot of money for them. And so the mother might say, oh, them? No, 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 they're stupid. You don't want them, they're not worth anything. So they would purposely degrade their children in order for them to not be sold off. But what does that do to a child who doesn't realize that they think they're stupid, they think they're dumb? And then they grow up with that sort of example of doing the same thing to their children, not realizing that there was a reason that this was happening. And so she talked about these things that passed on through generations that when we stop and we look and we say, where did this come from? We can see that it came from a place of trying to survive and trying to protect. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, had no idea about that history at all. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, Sarah, did you have anything else you wanted to add on how trauma can be uh, passed down generationally? Yes. Um, excellent example from Michelle about uh, family messages um, and parenting styles that might not make sense to the child, might not make sense to the great, great, great grandchild that still is experiencing the impact because what do we do with behaviors? We learn them. And if we don't unlearn those behaviors, we're going to continue it. But crucially, and what Michelle was saying, it was an adaptive, it was an adaptive behavior that those parents learned, protecting their children, and at the same time, that impacted the children, impacted the gene, uh, the um, family system. So that's that's the interactional way that transgenerational trauma might get passed on. And again, to um, emphasize this point, which is just that, like that behavior, that impact, that trauma, all happened within. A system of oppression all happened within uh, the American enslavement, all happened within white supremacy and continues to happen within the same systems of oppression um, for various minority populations. Um, so that's the family system. And there's more and more research on the uh, genetic link between trauma from one generation to the next generation. There was a study out of the Emory School of Medicine that studied um, how lab mice might uh, continue a, a genetically, um, who's about, I'm sorry, it was a study about lab mice whose parents learned a fear reaction to a totally normal, totally uh, non-threatening smell of cherry blossoms. Um, these lab mice got exposed to cherry blossoms, associated shock, um, so they learned a fear reaction with it. Um, throughout the next generation of lab pups, the lab pups who had never been exposed to, to shock, never had been exposed directly to the trauma associated with a cherry blossom scent, those lab pups expressed a fear reaction to the cherry blossom scent. Um, now, maybe the lab pups learned from their parents to fear the cherry blossom scent. So even in the next generation, those grandchildren experience the fear. Even if you uh, take the, you know, the, the, uh, intro you the the sperm and the egg of that lab rat and you mm -hmm. perpetuate and you inject it into another lab rat across the country that lab rat 
will experience the cherry blossom fear. No exposure to the parents, no exposure to the original researcher. Um, so there's some sort of gen uh, there's possibly some sort of genetic link between fear, trauma, and um, outside environmental stimulus. Um, all that's to say is that we don't fully know the mechanism by which trauma, by which fear, by which anxieties get passed on. Um, but like any other health condition, diabetes, cancer, these things do live in the gene in the gene code. The risk factors get activated once the same environmental stimulus gets activated. Um, so it's it's beyond family systems, but also something down to our very uh, makeup level. And it must have an adaptive purpose. Most of our functioning has an adaptive purpose, um, and so and we can talk about that adaptive purpose a little bit later. Oh, thank you so much. And and yeah, that adaptive purpose is just like what um, Michelle was mentioning you know, using those stories to just protect and just try to survive. So absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. But I'm um, so interested about the genes. I, I just, yeah, you, you don't think that that could be passed down, but it, it makes sense when, when you say it that way. So thank you so much. Um, speaking of, you know, uh, the physical response um, or the physical manifestations, I wanted to ask, Michelle, you know, how might transgenerational trauma manifest itself in someone's body physiologically? Yeah, I think like all trauma, regardless of where it comes from, it can manifest in like anxiety, depression, um, in those ways. I think that depending on what the trauma is too, there's very specific things as well. Like I think within the black community, there tends to be like this antisocial behavior towards other groups, specifically towards white people there's like this aversion because of the trauma that's been had at the hands of, you know, whiteness and white supremacy. Um, and I think also like hypervigilance, um, as well as just stress. And then like, like an overactive, like fight, flight, fawn, freeze response as well. Like, I feel like these are things that physically happen within the body when, um, especially now what's going on with everything happening. I think a lot of those things are being activated. So like that stress, that overall like collective fatigue I think it's definitely um, being activated right now. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, yeah. And may I add something right there? Of course. Um, just in, in the thought of how to, does transgenerational trauma manifest, um, some of the original like thoughts around transgenerational trauma, intergenerational trauma um, came up around survivors of the, of the Holocaust. Um, and these second generation survivors, so their parents had survived um, camps, but these second generational survivors were having nightmares that they couldn't explain. Um, so around that time in psychology, psychoanalysts was, um, were the leading thoughts in the field. So of course it would kind of come up in dreams because that tended to be the content of things. But um, another physiological reaction is unexplained fears, unexplained dreams that like kind of relate to experiences you can't remember having because it's an experience that's within your gene code. Wow. Amazing. Um, really, really interesting things. And, you know, speaking of um, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, um, as you know, it's a mental health condition that occurs after someone experiences a, a traumatizing event. Um, PTSD can involve, you know, flashbacks, uh, severe anxiety that you were mentioning before. So that being said, how does transgenerational trauma relate to PTSD? Um, so PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, typically relies that you have experienced some sort of trauma in the DSM. One of the diagnostic criteria is that you yourself is a survivor of 
a traumatic event or you've witnessed a traumatic event. Um, so the idea of transgenerational trauma kind of contradicts that idea of, of the our traditional clinical psychiatric understanding of PTSD as something that uh, you had to have personally experienced. Mm -hmm. And this idea of intergenerational trauma combats that idea and says that um, this is something that your community experienced. This is something that your grandmother experienced. This is something that lives in the cultural narrative. Um, so in some ways it contradicts PTSD, um, but in other ways it it is very much a trauma reaction, very similar to what PTSD reactions might be. I mentioned nightmares earlier that can't be explained, a symptom of PTSD. Um, increased anxiety, hypervigilance, fears you can't, fears that maybe don't seem quote unquote logical to someone else or to someone who doesn't know your history, someone who doesn't appreciate your history. Um, so trauma relates to PTSD, transgenerational trauma relates to PTSD and that it might increase an individual's risk of developing PTSD at a later point in their life. Um, were they to be exposed to a traumatic event? Uh, were they to be exposed to repeated chronic stressors, their um, symptomology might look very similar to that of someone with PTSD. Um, so it, it kind of allows us to expand our understanding of who is a trauma survivor, uh, what communities are trauma resilient, what communities um, need attention and healing and support in healing that collective trauma um, beyond uh you know, the traditional populations we think about or the, uh, you know, the general population might think about when it comes to PTSD. Uh, the first people might be thought of as veterans, but we expand that definition of many more people might have, may experience these trauma reactions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just one final point, um, I think I talked about it can ex uh, ex increase your risk factors um, or, you know, uh, and by that, I mean, if your family is experiencing the same impacts of that trauma from long ago through learned family dynamics, through um, a lack of access to resources, or that cycle hasn't been necessarily intervened upon, then um, it can very much be connected to the adverse childhood experience study, where um, adverse experiences within your childhood increase your risk factors for developing physical and mental illness later on in life. Transgenerational trauma might just be considered an additional risk factor that you're born into, that system that you're born into. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and I wanted to actually talk a little bit more uh, with you, Michelle, about, you know, the you know, right now there's a huge outcry of generations of pain and suffering endured by the black community in the United States that we were mentioning before, but especially right now and around the world. Um, so can you speak about how transgenerational trauma can be fueling, uh, fueling the sensations and emotions people may be feeling right now? Yeah, I think um, kind of like what I mentioned previously, like there's this collective fatigue that's going on right now um every black person i've talked to and even some i don't know but i've just seen them talking on at least social media um everyone's just tired yeah and and i think that's like a, a sensation like it's not it's not normal to see people who look like you over and over and over again being brutalized um being disregarded like it's, it's just it's not something you should be seeing all the time um and even just in the history of black people in this country like having those stories being passed down like that is just like like the, there are no words to describe that. And so um, I think some sensations or emotions, like I think people are just feeling really unsafe right now. 
And I think like they don't feel safe are supported by the government. They don't feel safe or supported by um, people or peers they thought, you know, maybe were for them or supported them. And now I think because of everything that's going on and I think we're really seeing who gets the issues and who doesn't get the issues. And I think a lot of eyes are being opened right now. So I think there's just this overall experience of fatigue, but also just this really unsafe feeling. Yeah. Absolutely. And I just want to thank you for, you know, being here today, talking with us. I know that, um, you know, we definitely value, you know, your perspective, of course, but also I do want to acknowledge that um, this is a really tiring time right now. So I really appreciate you uh, being here and sharing your your voice right now. Um, Sarah, I wanted to ask with you, with transgenerational inheritance has been found um to extend 14 generations when unbroken. So right now there is, which is just, wow. <laughs> um, so, um, so right now there's so much going on with, you know, coronavirus, police br- brutality, and people fighting for justice. So what can people do right now to help process their experiences in a healthy way? Absolutely. Um, uh- It's an excellent question, and I want to emphasize that whole point about 14 generations. Um, That's how the Emory study, that's how long they have tracked their mice, their rats who have uh, that cherry blossom fear. So that memory is strong enough through 14 generations. And for context, here in America, it's been seven to eight generations since the Civil War, 11 generations since America's foundation and uh, the American institution of slavery has lasted beyond that. The um, impacts of colonial colonization have been longer than 11 generations. So when we're talking about how long transgenerational trauma might last, that's from the initial traumatization instead of this ongoing system that we continue to live in. Um, So a lot of this my initial research and the initial presentation that I engaged with this uh, idea of transgenerational trauma in, uh, we were centered around this idea of like how to respond to get over it. Um, And that's kind of also a message that I've been seeing lately from um, less informed people, from people um, who don't fully understand the broad picture of what's happening here in America, that this isn't something that can be gotten over because it's not over. And also because, it, it, this trauma lives on. Um, so, uh, to that end, um, what can people do right now to process their experiences in a healthy way? Um, there's a wonderful Ted talk on addiction in which, uh, the main point for it is, uh, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Um, and that's the, that's the phrase that kept coming into my mind when I thought about healing right now during coronavirus, during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, witnessing police brutality, um, staying strong through fights for justice um, is the importance of connection and the importance of community and the flexibility of that definition of connection when we're supposed to be um, safer at home. Um, So I just really encourage anyone who's feeling who's feeling worn out, who's feeling fatigued, who um, might be thinking about their family histories right now, might be thinking about their cultural histories right now in such a salient way. Take time for self-care. 
um, through more ways than just disconnecting, um, through more ways than an emotional numbing out, but try those methods of connection, talking to someone who's like you, talking to someone who understands you, having the courage to speak on your experiences, um, and uh, also just practicing an acceptance of, of where you are, where you've been, um, and coming to terms coming to terms with that acceptance um, can be the first step in healing. It can be the first step in recovering some of that fatigue. Um, and there's, I, I go back to that idea of community, um, of going back to um, community appropriate healings, where if this is um, a pain that's been felt on a cultural level, then perhaps the only healing is through a culturally specific method of healing. Um, which expands the definition of healing outside of our dominant paradigm of medication, of uh, therapy is the only way. And therapy is fantastic um, and necessary for some, but might not be the only answer or the best answer for others. So it's really exp expanding that idea of what healing looks like, depending on what the pain looks like. Um, but if, Michelle, you have anything to add, please do so. Yeah, I think that was perfect. I love that, like, that whole thing about healing, that's something I'm thinking about now. It's like, how do we address this? But then how do we also, as a community, because I feel like the healing has to come from us, like, as far as how do we heal and then bringing in allies to help with the whole like systemic justice change, but how do we heal ourselves right now? Thank you so much, both of you, for your inputs about that. Um, I also wanted to ask you, Michelle, um, do you think, you know, images of police brutality will have lasting trauma on individuals, especially in the black communities right now? Oh, definitely. Yeah, um, I think prior to uh, 20, so 2012 is when uh, Trayvon Martin was murdered. And, and I live in Sanford. I live probably like 10 minutes from where he was murdered. And, but prior to that, the only thing I'd ever really heard about like police brutality was the Rodney King riots. And I didn't witness that. I was born in 92 and it happened in 92. So I really hadn't seen much of that. And I was also in, you know, just out of high school when Trayvon Martin happened. And so I think seeing that, like that still sticks with me as if it happened yesterday. Um, partly because it happened in my city, but also because of the nature of what happened. And then everything after that has stuck with me, even though it's been, you know, almost 10 years. So I can imagine, and, and, and even going back, like, my parents even talking about, you know, the stories that they heard about Emmett Till, like that still sticks with them, even though it happened so long ago. So I can definitely see that these are going to, these images are going to stick for a long time. And, and it just goes back to the nature of trauma, like, and what that is and what that looks like. So I, I definitely think that these are going to stick for a while. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, I think also another thing at play here is that it's so easy to see these images too. Um, and with technology and everything, I, I, um, I, they they were like posted everywhere, right? These videos and of, of what people were seeing. And yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that, yeah, that that will probably have pretty lasting effects on, on us as a whole, but definitely within, you know, the black community. Yeah. And can I speak to that too? Like seeing, like seeing those, um, images I know my sister she was like uh, purposely trying to not see specifically the murder of George Floyd like she heard about it and she was like I read the article I don't need to see it and I know a lot of people were trying to avoid it but the 24-hour news cycle it just kept replaying over and over again there are multiple times I had to mute my tv um 
And then finally, this is the pro tip for people who are on Twitter. You can actually turn off that automatic playing of videos on Twitter. I don't know how yet, but somebody was, they put that out as like a tweet of like, hey, everyone, if you don't want to see this really traumatic, you know, killing on TV or passing through your timeline, um, there are ways to like turn that off. I do believe it's in your accessibility settings. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's really important. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I personally have avoided it because, um, yeah, I think um, that would be really hard to see. Um, but, but yeah, I, I definitely, that's a great tip to know if people who are wanting to turn off the automatic video, definitely uh, that is possible on Twitter. So I really... That's really important to share. So thank you, Michelle. Sarah, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, more on a um, like a positive note about resiliency. Um, so what is resiliency and is it also passed down generationally? Yeah, um, this is a positive note. Um, and when I think about the idea of resiliency, um, I think about it, the word strength comes to mind first, but it's kind of more about strength. More, It's more than strength. It's the ability to keep going. It's um, the ability to like be a rubber band, to be, uh, to be stretched but not broken. Um, resiliency is the ability to tolerate strong emotions, to um, learn your stressors and to recover from your stressors through self-care, through appropriate self-care. Um, and through um, your own sense of exploration of your sto of your personal story and maybe now your family or cultural story. Um, so resiliency is the ability to keep going. Um, and so when I think about how is it passed down generationally, um, there is one fact that I've learned at, um, as my time as a therapy intern at Victim Service Center, through my studies, through my research, there's one, and through personal experience, the one thing that is true about all trauma survivors is that they survived. Um, and so all trauma survivors have a well of resiliency within them. Um, and that sometimes it feels inaccessible. Sometimes it is uh, scarred over and hidden from the trauma survivor. And so that's the whole point of healing. The whole point of um, coping and hoping is to find that well of resiliency and to build on it. Um, so um, if trauma gets passed on, so does that resiliency. Because the people who are passing on trauma are the people who have survived trauma. Um, and they survived it some way. That culture survived it somehow. Uh, so it's those values, strengths, cultural narratives, um, cultural um, values and healings um, and practices. Um, and so on the individual level, that looks like coping skills. It looks like um, a family who, yeah, they've survived these things, but they're coming together in other ways. Um, they know how to have fun together. Their strengths learned from grandparents and, and uh, parents. Um, there's, a uh, Dr. Carolyn Ross talks on, uh, intergenerational trauma and she calls it the treasure of trauma. Um, that, uh, trauma can be like a buried treasure, um, where you can discover that well of, um, discover that well of resiliency by engaging with storytelling with your family, um, to where it's hard to talk about these events, hard to talk about what you've survived in that you're learning a lesson of how you survived it and your children are learning a lesson on how you survived it. Um, and 
when you continue talking about trauma, we can, uh, and talking about resiliency, we change the narrative from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. Mm. And those are two very different questions. Um, it goes from, this is a personal failure. This is something that I deserved to, this is something that I survived. Yeah. And that belief itself is a source of resiliency. Um, so resiliency gets passed down generationally through that connection. Um, and then through the explicit way in which you take on, um, that family cycle of encouraging your family members to talk, encouraging your family members to access appropriate healing through, you know, through therapy or through, a, through whatever works for them as well. And then prevention too, um, using resiliency to learn how to try to interrupt this for your next generation, um, to, uh, you know, using resiliency to reduce an internal sense of shame. Um, it, it's all into, it's all tied together in that buried treasure that takes a while to get to. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I love um, having that positive spin on resiliency. Definitely. Um, so we talked a lot about, you know, what transgenerational trauma looks like, what it is. Um, but what would you say, Michelle, to someone who doesn't believe in transgenerational trauma? Um, well, if I can for a minute, I want to go back a second to what Sarah was talking about, because like that is probably my favorite thing to talk about is resiliency especially in groups that have been so oppressed. Um, because like, just really quickly, like my background is that my dad is from Nigeria and my mom is is black American. And so at one point, and I, I think I've said this before, so Sarah probably already knows this, but I, I realized at some point in my story, you know, my dad was born and raised in Nigeria and immigrated here in the late eighties. So at some point, somebody on his side of the family survived the transatlantic slave trade. Like they, they invaded capture. And he talks about how um, his tribe had to move further inland to escape that. So somebody on my dad's side survived. Somebody mm -hmm. on my mom's side did not. They were captured, but they survived. Mm -hmm. And so I think about all the time about how um, on both sides of my family, I have there is resiliency. There are people who survived against all the odds that were stacked against them. Um, and I even think of the story I heard about how like even slaves who were transported across, they would when they were braiding their hair, they would braid rice into their hair so that they would have food to eat because they didn't know when they would get to eat again. So even just that instance of braiding rice, like that is like somebody who wants to survive and is going to survive against everything. So like, so I love talking about resiliency um, when it comes to this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that story, Michelle. Anytime you tell it, I get the, I get chills uh, during it. You, thank okay, you. so I wasn't the only one. Okay, good. <laughs> um, Perfect. Going to your question um, about what would I say to somebody who doesn't believe it, um, I would really, because I'm very relationally driven, and so I would try to have, like, a very, like, intimate conversation about, like, hey, this is what it is, and try to bring up my story and, and try to explain it to them on a very one-on-one um, -on -one level, uh, but I realized, and, and also showing them the research to back up, like, this, even though we can't say this is what it is, everything is pointing us in this direction. Um, but then I also have come to realize over the years of having different conversations with people that I can lead a horse to water, and that's about all I can do. So I try to arm myself with as much knowledge as I can, and I would try to get them to step outside of themselves 
um, and, and really try to put themselves in the perspective of somebody who is, you know, um, Indigenous American or Black American and really look at like, what is the history? Like really look at the history of these people groups and what they've experienced. And, and, and really try to still tell me that there can't be all of this anger and there can't be all of this frustration at the system. Because um, I really feel like if people really took the time to understand the history, especially and really like history matters because it dictates today, then I feel like more people would understand um, why there is this collective anger. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story um, with us here and everyone who's listening as well. Um, and to continue sharing your story, um, definitely thank you so much. Uh, Sarah, I wanted to ask you um, as a, a final, well, actually, no, not a final question, sorry. But I do have a question real quick. Um, how does transgenerational trauma work on a systemic level? So a complicated point, um, because all systems are interrelated. And when we're talking about systems, um, I guess I should further define it. Um, I'm so sorry to everyone listening that like, I'm a family systemic thinker. So this uh, can come it's become a natural language for me, but to just define it, when we're talking about systems, sometimes we're talking about families and how families function. We're talking about communities and how that community functions, how one action leads to another. And then we're also talking about broad nations and how the laws and governances, school like school, you know, school systems, judiciaries, values, media, we're talking about how all of those different institutions relate to one another. So it's all the way down from um, family. Sometimes some uh, theorists and practitioners believe in an interpersonal system, like internal family systems um, is a fantastic um, school of thought for family therapy. It's the belief that we, we ourselves as individuals have a system within us. Um, so just, just kind of define it um, for anyone listening. Um, so how it gets, uh, I'm sorry, repeat your question for me. Oh, how, totally how does transgenerational trauma work on a systemic level? Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, it works at that individual level. So I am, if I've received a genetic marker, I've received the potential for, um, for this specific gene to get activated in a process called epigenetics, where I've been exposed to a risk factor. And because I have this certain, certain, um, risk in my DNA, um, I have this certain combination of um, genes, this um, balance of neurochemicals in my brain, I am at greater risk for these health outcomes. So that's me on an individual level. Then I get exposed to a family who activates that um, through an emotionally distant mother or, an, or a father um, who might not have healed from their own trauma. And I, and I don't want to perpetuate the idea that hurt people, hurt people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to perpetuate that idea that uh, trauma is an inevitability of hurting someone else. That's a stigma against people who have survived trauma. Um, and this systems level is just more about talking about that impact of what happens when um, there isn't healing, when there isn't effort, uh, the unintentional impacts of what your emotional distancing can do to children. Um, so that gets activated on the individual level. But maybe my, my parents couldn't heal themselves because they're disenfranchised from the community, living in poverty, can't access basic needs, can't meet those basic needs, or on a surviving rather than a thriving mindset. Um, so that's 
how a system, the, the law, the government system has impacted my family system. Um, and then that law, that governing system um, operates, impacts the community level where there's less resources for the community, less resources to be able to do activities like, um, like the arts, sports, um, things that, you know, make a community community. They don't have the ability to enact that. Um, and then, uh, so community, family, individual, bringing it up to the nation where those laws, those governances are created through a system of white supremacy, of homophobia, of transphobia, of um, sexism, racism, uh, Islamophobia, what, whatever that system of white supremacy perpetuates, um, written into the laws, written into the way certain people access power, it trickles down onto the community, onto the family, onto the individual through those interrelated cycles. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. That, that explains it a lot. I know that that was uh, probably really complicated <laughs> too, but, um, but Thank you so much for sharing that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, there's a lot of, you know, systems playing here. Um, and it shows that, look how complicated all of this is, right? Um, so I really appreciate you both, you know, kind of sitting with me and breaking it down um, for everyone. Um, speaking of, you know, um, we talked a little bit about allies earlier, um, Michelle, but I wanted to ask, like, you know, what exactly is an ally um, to the Black community and how can allies be mindful of transgenerational trauma? And then finally, what tips do you have for allies? Yeah, so um, I've been using the word ally a lot recently and then through more research and understanding even you know within my own community, I feel like anti-racist is a better word to use than ally. Um, and sometimes they're used interchangeably, sometimes they kind of mean the same thing, but I feel like an anti-racist takes it like the next step um, even putting themselves in the way to disrupt racism. Um, and like there's this quote from Angela Davis where she says, it's not enough to be to not be racist, you have to be anti-racist. Um, and an anti-racist is somebody who um, in their everyday life, they are seeing what things, whether it's unconscious biases, maybe it's hiring practices in their jobs, maybe it's somebody at the grocery store who says something that's just off key or you know whatever it's disrupting those things, it's calling those things out, calling people in for conversations. Um, it's not enough to just sit here and um, and see something happening and say, well, it's not me, I'm not racist and I didn't do it. But are you being anti-racist? Are you calling out those things that you see? Because that's how the change ultimately happens. Um, and I think as far as transgenerational trauma and how allies can be mindful of that, I think it goes back to what Sarah was talking about um, when you look at a group of people and you don't ask the question, well, why are you like this? It's asking what happened to you um, and being mindful of there are things that have happened that have led to what is taking place right now. Um, and it is not the fault of the community at all. So I think it's being mindful of that um, whenever you're trying to do ally work within a community that's not your own, because sometimes those communities are very different than the one you might have grown up in and you might not understand everything that they do. Um, but I think it's taking time to understand that. Yeah. And then as far as tips go, um, you know, the things that I've found that work as far as trying to be an ally or anti-racist is listening is the very first thing that everybody has to do. I feel like I'm seeing a lot of um, white people who are standing up and saying, this is what we need to do. And I'm like, wait, 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 did, but, but did you consult any black people first? 
Um, are you reinventing the wheel? Does this already exist? Is there somebody who's already said this at some point? You know, like um, there's a really great book, uh, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I mean, I even bought it myself because I'm reading through it and it's really helpful for me when I'm talking to people. Um, but she is a white woman who wrote this book. And there have been scores of black people who've written about this and studied this. Um, and I rarely see their names thrown up like I do her name or Tim Wise. And she's acknowledged on interviews I've watched. She said, like, there are black people, black women who have approached this in the same way I'm doing. And they are always overlooked. And that's not OK. And so I think the first step is to listen to the community and listen to what they want and what they need. And don't try to reinvent the wheel. Look and see if it already exists. And then amplifying voices. Um, it's important that we are amplifying the voices that already exist um, and not trying to talk over them or center ourselves in the narrative. Um, I've seen that a lot recently where people are saying, you know, I am a white person who is in relationship with this black person here, how this is affecting me. And I'm like, but this isn't about you. This is about, I want to hear from that spouse who is black. I want to hear from that child who is black. How is this affecting them? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hearing a lot of white voices amplified, but not a lot of black voices. Um, and then like, I just did a whole talk on how to be an anti-racist and an ally. So I have the notes that I did. Um, I love it. <laughs> oh, also be open to feedback. Um, that's a really big thing, not to be fragile um, when you're being corrected. Um, I see that a lot. People get defensive. And I, and I understand like you just like nobody wants to be corrected. But if you want to have be the most effective in this fight against racism, you have to be open to feedback, especially from the community this is directly affecting. Um, also commitments. So uh, I am 27 and I uh, have lived as a black woman in this country for 27 years. And uh, it's hard. It is a hard fight, you know, and there are days that you're tired. There are days you want to give up. I don't have the luxury of giving up, um, but a white person does because if anything, they benefit from the system. So they could just give it up. But I think that if you want to do this, you have to know you have to know that you want to be committed to doing this um, and knowing that at some point it might be lonely. Um, there's this really great book from um, Austin Channing Brown, and it's called um, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. And she talked about how she had a mentor who said to her, um, he said the phrase, ain't no friends here. And she took that to understand that this journey, sometimes in some seasons of it, there are no friends. There are no people who are backing you. There are people who are going to think that you're wrong, um, that you're saying the wrong thing, that you're believing the wrong thing, but you have to keep going. You can't stop because there's too much on the line. And then the very last thing is like education. Like, who are your educators? Like, are you only reading books about anti-racist work from white people? Or are you reading it from a diverse amount of black people and indigenous writers and latinx writers like all types of writers who are of color um not just white people right because again that is white people putting their spin and the narrative on this thing that people of color black people have had to live with so those are my tips for someone who's trying to venture into being anti-racist i love that thank you so so much um i recently listened to a podcast called Minority Corner. Um, definitely recommend it. Anyone who's listening, it's amazing. Um, but he described allies as um, interns. <laughs> and I love that because it's like, yeah, you're not you're not the main show. You go get the coffee, you know, you support. Um, so but also that that anti-racist factor, too. Um, definitely. I, I love the the activism behind that. Um, 
I, I read somewhere that silence is a privilege that many people don't get to enjoy, um, that um, white people can, right? Um, they can easily just turn away, uh, put their blinders on. Um, so anti-racist, definitely, instead of just being not racist, right? Um, so thank you so much. Uh, Sarah, as a final question for real now. <laughs> um, <laughs> So transgenerational trauma sounds kind of, you know, scary, to be honest, and um, may give some the impression that they are born, you know, broken by the system that we were talking about that they're born into. Do you have any, you know, encouraging words about how we can overcome transgenerational trauma and break that cycle, for lack of a better phrase? And again, I think, of course, both of you can answer this question as well. Um, yeah, I'm going to just pull it back to that resiliency question, um, which is that maybe you're born into, you're born into the system. None, none of us can choose the system by which we're born into. Um, but you have access to those wells of resiliency to, to stories and to narratives and to values, um, that have kept, um, that system here today and alive, um, despite whatever struggles it might still be going through. So, um, look to where you came from, um, and find power in the story, um, and, uh, turn those ghosts into ancestors. Don't be haunted by history, um, but led and informed by it. Um, but I, I don't know. I, this whole time I'm answering the question, I'm thinking back to um, Michelle and your story and then also into your idea of being an ally um, and how, like, in terms of, like, quote unquote, breaking the cycle, my responsibility um, from a seat of privilege of taking steps back um, and facilitating, like, other people's ability to break that cycle rather than assuming that I can do that for them. Um, so please add any thoughts you've got. No, I think that's perfect, honestly. Yeah, I, oh, thank you guys so much. I really, um, you know, we talked about, you know, having chills about listening to your story, but I'm gonna be honest, I I had chills the entire time we recorded <laughs> this. Um, this is probably one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever recorded. Um, so I really appreciate you both being here. That being said, um, is there anything else that you, either of you would like to say before we kind of sign off here? Oh man, there's so, so many things I would like to say, but, um, it's just, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for having this conversation and for, um, anyone else who might be thinking about, um, their role in, um, a system of oppression, whether it's, um, the seat of the privileged or from the seat of, um, those without privilege, um, think about how you're going to use that position um, for for the best. And I echo that. And, you know, just it, it feels hard and it feels hopeless right now, um, but it's not going to always feel this way. Um, like there there is hope and we've seen that all throughout history. Um, and the fact that like, as like if some people know who this is, but Representative John Lewis, who marched with MLK um, in the 60s, he says that we have to get in good trouble. And so, like, I encourage people to get in good trouble um, in order to disrupt the system. I love that. I think that's a wonderful place to sign off here. So um, thank you all for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling 
counseling services for survivors of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, you know, healing is not linear. You're not alone. Black Lives Matter. And uh, thank you both, Sarah and Michelle, for joining me today. Thank you, Emily.